Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools, hosted by two parents, I'm one of them, who decided it was time to speak up about what was going on in our kids' schools. And on this podcast, we explore topics of interest to parents and talk about how they can address issues in their schools, as well as we cover some of the bigger picture education topics that are affecting our country. I'm Andrew Gutman. I am joined by my co-host, the other parent and sort of accidental activist, Beth Feely. And we have a, a really, really special guest this week that I'm, I'm very excited to for a couple of reasons. And I'll let you introduce her, uh, but she's a constitutional lawyer. I'm one of those people that kind of wish they went to law school. Um, so I'm a little bit jealous of, of her being that. And I'm really interested in the Constitution. I just came back uh, late last night from a nice little trip uh, last week to Washington, D.C. And, and Virginia doing a lot of historical stuff. But we went to the National Archives and got to see the original Constitution and Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence. So this is especially timely. So with that, Beth, you want to introduce today's guest. Some parents and teachers are turning to lawsuits to address issues in the classroom. It's never something to be taken lightly. And today we have with us Kim Herman. Kim is general counsel at Southeastern Legal Foundation, one of the nation's oldest conservative public interest law firms. SLF works to reclaim our civil liberties and has taken up the fight against unconstitutional woke education to the courtroom. So welcome, Kim. Hey, great to be with you guys today. Kim, why would a parent sue a school? There's many reasons why a parent might consider suing a school right now. Um, Just from a high level, it could be that their student has been required to take, say, an anti-racist pledge or pledge allegiance in a classroom to a BLM flag or an LGBTQ flag. That's something that we see popping up um, in an alarmingly increasingly rate. Um, Another reason could be that there's segregation in the school. We have schools across our country who are uh, both doing voluntary and mandatory racial segregation uh, that ended in our country over 70 years ago. It's unconstitutional. And when that happens, they should be going to the courtrooms. So let me ask you a question. I'm take a step back. When did this come on your radar? These woke issues, these compelled speech issues, which I know we're going to get into. You know, how long have you sort of been in this fight and when did you first see this as an issue in schools? So we actually started seeing this in the fall of 2019. So before it was a kitchen table conversation or coming through your TV every single night. So pre Um, pre just so so pre BLM, pre the summer of George Floyd. Okay. Yeah, it was pre-BLM, pre-George Floyd. Uh, we work with college kids a lot on their fr- and helping them understand their First Amendment rights. We, do a, we train thousands and thousands of conservative and libertarian students every year on their First Amendment rights at college level. And they would frequently come to us and say, I had to take an orientation class. I had to take this required class. And in it, we had to do a privilege walk. We had to do a safe circle. We had to do any number of, of these activities that we see in K through 12 now. And we had no idea what to do about it. I'm not afraid to say that. I don't mind saying that. We really didn't know how to tackle this issue. And we didn't know how pervasive it was in K through 12 until Chris Rufo uh, went on Tucker Carlson. And we realized that what we were seeing was happening everywhere. And we knew that we had to now give parents a legal option in K through 12. So, um, but it, it predates the current discussion of race in this country. Do you have a sense for how long it had been going on at the university level? Yeah, from what we've learned, I mean, it's been going on at the university level since the civil rights movement, right? When they, okay. when, when this faction couldn't take over the civil rights movement 
and essentially bring the Marxist ideas, this ideas of a, of a you're an oppressor or you're an oppressed and divide our country by race, they turned to the academy. And it had been brewing in colleges and in law schools for decades until they were able to graduate those students and then they became teachers in the schools. My sense is that several years ago, about 2015 or so, you really saw this become mainstream. You were hearing about more instances. You had the Yale incident over the Halloween costumes. And so do you do you sense that there was a like what was the catalyst um, at that time or do you sense that that was the case? One thing that we've heard from a lot of the parents and, and even more so from the teachers that come to us is that it was that 2015, 2016 time period. And they feel like, honestly, like when Trump was elected to the White House, the response that they were seeing in their schools um, went from bringing race into things kind of in a a background way and and these uh, gender issues in a background way front and center. And it became a full on assault on our civil rights in this country. So when a parent decides to sue a school or a student, what what makes a good case or a bad case? Because obviously this is a lot to undertake. <laughs> yeah, that, that, oh gosh, we've gotten hundreds and hundreds of inquiries over the last uh, two years since we came out really talking about this. And, you know, from a, from a discrimination perspective, what makes a good case right now is you need to see a discriminatory treatment. That sounds like legalese, but it, it's really easy to understand. If the school is treating people differently because of the color of their skin, then they are violating your equal protection rights and they are violating the Civil Rights Act. The government just cannot treat people differently because of their skin color. So they can't have a a different discipline policies based on your skin color. They can't teach you different lessons based on your skin color. That is when you have that, you have a potential lawsuit that should be brought to the courts. So one of the one of the big things we're seeing all over in schools is affinity groups, where they are segregating kids by race and by other identity things. But I, I'm guessing that is not necessarily treating them differently enough where you would have that kind of case. Is that is that correct? Or do affinity groups kind of get close enough to where there's something there? Uh, the answer is a little bit of, it depends, which I know people hate, but that's the typical lawyer answer, right? Um, if it's a mandatory affinity group, it's my opinion that you would potentially have a claim that you can I, can I stop you right there? When you say mandatory affinity group, Mm -hmm. I want to make the distinction mandatory to join a specific affinity group or mandatory to join a affinity group, because I've heard stories, and, and this is from sort of private school world, and that's why I don't know if this is having a public school, where they say, kids, you have to join three affinity groups, but they don't necessarily say which three they have to join. So is there a distinction there between joining a specific affinity group and just joining affinity groups generally? There, There is a distinction legally, and the, the courts haven't ruled on this issue. So I also want to make really clear to everyone listening, Courts haven't ruled on it on affinity groups yet. Um, if a school, though, is requiring you to be part of an affinity group based on race, right, and they are excluding people from joining certain affinity groups based on, again, your skin color, um, your national origin, these, these things that are protected by the Constitution, these immutable characteristics, things you can't change, 
um, then I would argue and I would go to court and we are in court right now arguing that these are discriminatory and that these are unlawful and unconstitutional. We still have to wait for a court to rule on them. Um, but that's what I mean by mandatory, right? It's very different than saying there are affinity groups that you can join if you want to join them. That's what I consider a voluntary. But when you're required to join one, um, then that is a mandatory one. Well, I have a question about a school asking for a friend um, that is a school near me. They have affinity groups, and the two choices are you can join the people of color affinity group or the anti-racist affinity group. There is that, and that is the choice for the white students. How does that jive? I believe it's all voluntary, um, but is that something that would constitute some sort of discrimination? Possibly, right? And so if it's voluntary that you join and they're not requiring you to join one of these, your case is going to be a little bit more challenging. It doesn't mean that you might not have a case under state law. So what we also know is that some states have more stringent or stricter protections. So if you filed a lawsuit under a particular state law or your state constitution, and there may be a particular claim there. Um, you know, one thing that I, that I like to mention to parents and talk about is that just because you may have a case doesn't mean that you should file it. So if your school is segregating and you're having mandatory segregation like we have in District 65 up in Illinois, where you have white teachers in one room, non-white teachers in another, and they're teaching them different lessons about racism and in and, and our country and, and how to present this to their students, that is a segregation case. In cases like this with the affinity groups, it may be smarter to allow some of our current cases to play out, right? You have to bring the strongest cases first and set really strong precedent, and then you can build cases up and pass them. Something like that, I would say, go to your newspaper, get the information out there, go to your school board meeting, just because you may have a case doesn't mean that you should always bring it. Um, and so we need to think really strategically about this if we're going to win this fight in the long term. And you had a recent um, piece published at AEI uh, titled The Critical Race Theory Fight Isn't Culture War, It's Constitutional War. And you referred to the two cases that you have underway. Um, could you bring us up to speed and I guess, uh, I guess, tell us the basics and then also um, from the article, like what are the takeaways that you'd like people to have? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, we have a case up in District 65, which is in Evanston, Illinois. Um, this case is really unique because our client, who is a very brave drama teacher, she filed a complaint with the Department of Education back in 2019. Again, way before anyone was talking about this as a national issue. And her complaint said this, it said, my school district is segregating students and teachers. My school district is, has a different disciplinary program depending on the color of the, the student's skin. And overall, we're creating a hostile learning environment, right? This violates the Civil Rights Act. The Department of Education agreed with her and they issued a letter of finding saying that District 65 violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and that they were going to then have to remediate this. Biden's inaugurated, and three days later, the letter is withdrawn with no explanation. We still have never received any formal communication from the Department of Education about it. And so she knew that this battle had to keep being fought. And so we filed a lawsuit on her behalf. Um, and she's not fighting about 
and saying, look, I'm white, I'm a victim, I've been discriminated against. She's saying these policies create a hostile learning environment for everyone in the district, and this needs to stop. Um, That case is underway. We filed it uh, last summer, and right now we're just still in the process of litigating. These take years. The other case we filed is in Missouri, and it's a compelled speech case. So it's teachers that were forced in a mandatory training to say things like um, all whites are privileged, uh, parents are oppressors of their children, they had to identify where they fell on the oppression matrix that so many people have seen. And if you are a white, then you automatically are an oppressor. So, I, I mean, I could list the, the parade of horribles in this training, but it's a compelled speech case. And we're, we're pretty far into that case right now. Um, we expect a ruling on that sometime early next year. Something that's been out there for a while is this white privilege survey. I think it came from Peggy McIntosh, who originated this uh, white knapsack or something like that. Is that compelled speech to force a student to fill that out? So surveys are kind of their unique kind of own, they they just live in their own little world. And it's, it's really challenging because you can't bring lawsuits uh, against these surveys in, in the same way that you would otherwise. But to answer your question directly, um, no, uh, it doesn't typically fall under compelled speech because you can answer them arguably in any way that you want to. Now, if it's a multiple choice survey, there's some theory out there that maybe this is compelled speech, maybe it's not compelled speech, right? So if you're given a question and you have to, you can only pick from A, B, C, or D, and you don't agree with any of those and they're all leading, maybe it's compelled speech. Um, It's not gonna be a super strong claim. The, The thing people should be doing with surveys though is filing administrative complaints with the Department of Education and some attorney generals have investigatory authority. Um, I don't want to tease out too much, but I can tell you that this is an area that we're really looking into at SLF. We have a lot of parents who have come to us wanting help on this. And so, um, you know, follow us in the next month. And I think you're going to see some, some action from us on this, this area. I'd love to talk a little bit more about compelled speech because I, I think it's really interesting. I think it, it I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's sort of unsettled in the school environment, what, what may or may not be compelled speech. Can, can you start with, can you give us sort of like a really quick 101 of what is compelled speech or what is not compelled speech? I know there's a famous Supreme Court case about the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and, and then maybe we can get into whether pronouns being forced to say our pronouns may or may not be compelled speech. What other things might be considered or not considered compelled mm-hmm. speech? If you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So our our lawsuit is teachers that have brought a compelled speech case for in a a training. And so first, I want to make sure we we make the distinction there. If we're talking about teachers, there isn't an issue for them of compelled speech in the classroom. They're employees. And so if they're given curriculum and told that this is the curriculum you're supposed to teach, um, the line for compelled speech in a classroom for them is, is very different than it is for students. Um, If you're talking about students, you talked about the famous case, the Barnett case, where the Supreme Court said that you can't force uh, kids to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, if you can't force them to say the Pledge of Allegiance to our country, then you certainly cannot require them to pledge allegiance, as I mentioned, to a BLM flag. Or you can't make them say that I am privileged because I am white, right? If they are being forced to affirm or attest to anything that they don't agree with in that format, um, then they may have a compelled speech case. In terms of pronouns for students, um, 
yes, if they're being forced to say their particular pronouns or identify as something that they don't want to identify as, then they may have a case. The issue of teachers and pronouns, that's something that the Supreme Court is going to have to you know, consider. There's a number of cases that are working their way up to both state Supreme Courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. So I wish I had a settled answer on that. I would argue it's compelled speech, um, but the courts still haven't decided that as so, a, at the highest level. So uh, do, do we have a, you have a guess of a time frame when we might actually have that answer? I mean, it's going to work its way up, but. Yeah, there's a few that are going to be going up to some state Supreme Courts, and then there's one or two that are in the courts of appeal. And so I, it's hard to say because we don't we never know if the Supreme Court's going to take the cases, right? They get. I don't even know, seven, eight, 9,000 cases a year before them. And they only hear like 70 of them right. or something. My numbers aren't quite right there, but you get the idea. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. So, um, but I, you know, if you have people that are being forced to say these things and you have attorneys willing to bring the cases, you have a plausible claim. There was just a just there was just a ruling, I think, or a settlement that was reached with a I think it's a, an, a university in Ohio about this issue where the professor preferred not to use um, different pronouns because it violated religious beliefs. But then uh, and and brought suit. And then the school um, actually obviously took the opposite position, but uh, but they were just forced to pay damages. Does that indicate um, anything in terms of how this could play make its way through the courts? Yeah, I mean, the, the cases that have been brought so far, I think our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom have brought some of these cases and they, they've had some really good success so far at the, at the lower court level. Um, and so that's what I mean by I, I think that there's plausible cases there and there, there's a lot of legal issues to work through. But anytime the government is requiring somebody, again, to affirm or attest something they don't believe in then it's arguably compelled speech. Now, with the pronouns, you do have the religious component where you could also bring additional constitutional claims saying it's violating my religious beliefs. Now, that's not an area where SLF uh, necessarily lives, but again, our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, Beckett Fund, groups like that are doing phenomenal work to kind of push that needle and move that I got forward. a dumb, one last sort of dumb, not, you know, layperson's non-lawyer question I'm I'm in an English class yeah and my teacher says you have to memorize and cite a Shakespeare sonnet in order to pass this class and maybe there's something in that sonnet I don't agree with I'm assuming that is not compelled speech for for sort of obvious education Uh, reasons you would not win you probably would yeah you probably wouldn't win it in in a court of law on something like that and that's actually the type of case that we say to parents go to your school right? Go to your administrator, go to your school board, raise the issue on this. There, there is that line where it's curriculum versus- That's my question. Speech. Where, now, where again, is that line? You're yeah. being, yeah. That, and that, that line is constantly moving, right? From a legal perspective, right? It's something that we have to, to make those decisions and the judges will make those decisions. And I, I wish that there, like you said in the beginning, when we talked about this, there isn't always a bright line on something like this. Now, if somebody is told they have to take an anti-racist pledge, which we've got four or five-year-olds that can't even read, and they're being forced to recite anti-racist pledges, you're, you're having to agree and affirm and attest something that is different than having to memorize and recite a Shakespeare play to a court. How do I explain that? It, I don't know if I necessarily can. It's just kind of one of those, which unfortunately the courts will say, you so know, this is like the right, pornography, you know, it makes it, when it you really see it hard kind of thing. Okay. It makes it really, really hard okay, let, for parents. Now, 
it, it just passes the smell test. So if somebody comes to us with that, we can just say, you're not, you're going to, it's going to take years and years and years in the court. Let's focus on the cases where we can win and move the needle. And then maybe you can bring those cases later. If to, they're right to some, so, you know, we, again, layperson's question, you know, we sort of understand that, that over the long term, the courts, especially the Supreme Court, sort of follows public opinion. Public opinion, at least in, in, in the media, in the popular media, mainstream media, is going in a certain direction on this, things like pronouns, things like whatever we want to call CRT. So um, to, the, to, to your point of, well, you know, you know it when you see it, if the courts are following what seems to be public opinion, and even if it's not the majority opinion, it seems to be the majority opinion, like I said, in, in the media, is there that worry that this, you know, we, we are changing what the, what, what we consider to be compelled speech. We are changing the meaning of, you know, the 14th Amendment. Um, I mean, do you have that fear? And can I add a, a quick question? Yeah. And should the courts be, uh, be should they be following well, That's a bigger opinion? question. I mean, wait a minute. I, <laughs> I think we need more time yeah. for that one. Well, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the constitution says what it says. It's just that it hasn't always been interpreted in every, in every situation in the sense of sometimes there's legal doctrines out there that haven't been fully established. And so when we're looking at things like compelled speech, do I ever think that a court is going to say that a student doesn't have to recite a, a Shakespeare sonnet or act out a, a Shakespeare play in, in class if it's being acted out as written? I mean, no. Um, at what point do you draw that line where you'd have no more curriculum, right? Because um, everyone's going to disagree with something. You're not being forced to agree or, or be compelled by it. Um, and so I don't, if you have a good judge, they're going to be principled to the constitution. They're going to look at what did, what did these amendments actually mean? What does the first amendment mean? But from, there are unsettled areas, for example, compelled speech when it comes to, to teachers, right? There are some people and some teachers that are saying, Hey, this is violating my rights by making me say X, Y, or Z in class, or you're violating my free speech by not letting me say X, Y, and Z or class. Well, they're employees. Right. There's a lot of law around that that says, look, you're in an employee setting. Some of those rights are shed and the courts will continue to grapple with those, especially as we see challenges brought by the left against bills like in Florida. Right. And so you're going to keep seeing these pop up. Um, but no, I don't think that public opinion should shape what the, the, the jurists are doing in any way, shape or form. We have a constitution. It was written that way for a reason. And it it shouldn't be changed. Do parents have a legal right to see all the curriculum that their students, their children are learning? They absolutely do. <laughs> they have a right from a federal perspective. There are federal laws. Um, it's like alphabet soup, but you have a thing called FERPA. And you have a thing called PPRA. And under both of those federal statutes, uh, the schools are supposed to make available all instructional materials, all student records, um, parents have a right to all of those on top of your state FOIA or open records laws. Um, we have lots of schools right now saying we can't give it to you. It's copyrighted or a lesson plan is a teacher's personal property, a personal document. Um, you know, we have some of these lawsuits going on. Our friends at Goldwater Institute have some of these lawsuits going on. Unfortunately, we're just going to have to litigate them to keep them open and get these records, but they have every right to see every single piece of paper and piece of curriculum that goes in front of so them. So a lot of the states we're seeing now, and I know Goldwater is one of the organizations behind this, we're seeing 
states pursue transparency, curriculum transparency legislation. If what I just heard you know, correctly from what you said, theoretically, that shouldn't be necessary because parents already have those rights. But obviously, the fact that parents don't seemingly in practice have those rights, uh, we do need those kind of state legislations. Is that right? And, and do you agree with the kind of curriculum transparency legislation that a lot of states, or at least red states mostly, are pursuing? That's an excellent point. And one I, I try to bring up a lot is with, with all of these new laws that are out there, a lot of them aren't necessarily needed um, from a legal perspective, but they're not a bad thing, right? So if you have laws out there that are further defining what transparency means in education and giving parents and another way to get these documents, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it raises awareness to the issue um, and it can only help. But it's like with anything else, we have a civil rights act. Well, we have a 14th amendment, right? We have the constitution that already says you can't treat people differently because of the color of their skin, but the government was treating people differently because of their color of their skin. So they pushed forward with the civil rights act. Um, I'm, I, I love the transparency legislation that we're seeing. I think that you need to distinguish it from some of the other legislation out there. Um, some is good, Meaning some is the, bad. Meaning the, the sort of what we call sort of the banned CRT legislation yeah. that we saw. Okay. You got it. Some of the banned CRT legislation, um, you could look at any one of those and go line by line and say, this is a good line. This is a bad line. This is a constitutional line. This isn't going to hold up in court. You'd have to really dissect the this quote unquote CRT bans to look at them, but they're very different from transparency legislation. And it's really important that people in this fight understand that. And they fight those two battles kind of, kind of differently and in two lanes, basically. Which states are doing a good job regarding this transparency legislation? Um, I, I, honestly, I'd have to look and see which ones passed this past session. There were so many out there. Or even um, the proposed, even the proposed ones. Yeah. I mean, I, Honestly, the, the Goldwater model that they have out there, I think, is just really strong. So any states that are moving forward with that, any states that are further opening up the classroom to parents, um, there's, you know, I can tell you I, every week I've got young children. I've got a, a pre-K and then a second grader. I see every single thing that goes before them at school, every worksheet, every single textbook. They're in a small private Christian school. And that was a really important thing to me that I looked into before I sent them there. My friends who are at our local public school, which is a good, good school, great school district for here in Georgia, um, they've never seen anything. They get grades, but even for first grade, she doesn't even know the spelling words. They don't even get the tests sent home. It is, it, it, I was flabbergasted when I found that out. So I don't think people realize what a big problem this is, but it's not just a matter of hiding curriculum. It's that parents don't even see what they're, what they're, it's in front of their kids to help them from an academic perspective too. So bringing this back to kind of where we started with bringing a lawsuit and what would be involved, if a parent or teacher saw that it you know, felt like they were at that point, what should they expect to happen? Like what should they be think, uh, thinking through before they would commit to going down this path? Yeah, well, the first thing they need to do is document, 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 right? So every single thing that is going on, you need to keep a very good record of. I tell them that if they want to be in this fight at all. Um, the second is, you know, are they willing to actually go the distance? Lawsuits take a long time. 
Um, you've got groups out there like ours, where, as you mentioned, we're a public interest law firm. So we take all of our cases pro bono. So it doesn't cost them anything from a financial perspective, but the goal is not money, right? We don't settle our cases. We don't seek damages in them. The goal is to get these schools to stop acting in an unconstitutional way. So they've got to be willing to go the distance. Um, and, you know, that's been our biggest problem to this point. Our two clients right now on these cases are teachers. Um, they're still teaching in these districts. They go to work every single day, standing up for these kids into an environment at a school that they've sued. And, you know, you've got tons of parents out there on Twitter, tons of parents going to school board meetings. When push comes to shove, um, they haven't wanted to actually sign on to these cases. And so I would encourage them to just be willing to stand up. If you don't do it, you can't depend on these teachers to keep doing it for your kids. Are there specific, I mean, you, I'm sure you get a lot of people contact you uh, given what's going on in the world. I mean, are there specific cases that you're looking for? Are there other teacher cases versus student or parent? Uh, are there ones that you would really like to see you think would have, you know, more of an impact, you know, globally if, if there was a win at the end of the day? Yeah. I mean, right now we've got kind of our comprehensive title six and equal protection case and our compelled speech case for a teacher. Um, some cases that I think that need to be brought. I think that we need to bring some cases on these uh, discriminatory disciplinary uh, programs that I Does that this go under sort of restorative justice um, stuff? Okay. Yeah. So they're called restorative justice. And, um, you know, the goal of these isn't necessarily that you don't want to suspend more kids, right? But you shouldn't be suspending one kid and not suspending another because of the color of their skin. It's just unconstitutional. If you want to relook at your disciplinary you know, policies, do that. Do it in a colorblind basis, like we are required to do in this country. So that is something that I just think um, we really need to look at as a country and dig into. And I think that there could be some potential cases there. So you know, that's one example. Um, and that's an area where parents have yet to want to really stand up or acknowledge it because it sounds kind of scary. And people are quick to label you a racist right. when you say that. Um, but I think we're so far beyond labels at this point that they can't worry about that. No, parents are scared. I mean, I I know this intimately how scared parents are about speaking up on these issues. I, I want to ask a question. You know, I came to this fight accidentally from the private school world. You know, most of this fight is on the public school world, partially because that's where most of the kids are, partially because you do have certain civil rights protections that you don't have in private school. You have the ability to file FOIA requests that you don't have in private school. You can run for school board. We are told over and over in the private school world, and your experience I think is very different than, than mine and people I know where we have no transparency or had no transparency into what our kids are learning in, in some of the um, you know, independent secular private schools. We are told over and over, we have no rights. We sign a contract that can kick our kids out for any reason. Is there any hope in the private school world? Do we have any rights? Are there anything that private school parents can do to sort of push back on what is going on in the schools, which are the same woke issues that are going yeah. on in public schools? The $10 million yeah. question. <laughs> Other than pull our kids um, out, which is what I did, but very few were yeah, doing that. Yeah, I know. That's everyone. Yeah. I, I get emails and it says, Other than pull my kids out, can you please give me a real <laughs> recommendation here? Um, Yes and no. So you're, you do get kind of stuck through these contracts and things like that. Um, but I do think that there are some 
bigger, more global things that we can look at um, that almost open up more school choices. So for example, a lot of the stuff at these private schools, some of them are true believers. And if they're true believers, I, I, I don't have a, an answer, right? That's just what's happening at that school. Um, if they're not true believers and it truly is being brought in by accreditors, accreditation companies, the, like, like yep. NAIS that we talk about, things like that, we need to change state laws so that these schools don't have to be accredited by, say, NAIS or affiliate members of NAIS. Here in Georgia, we have a thing called Hope Scholarship, which can basically pay for your college education if you have a certain GPA. In order for students to be eligible for Hope Scholarship, the schools have to be accredited by like a list of, of accreditation companies. You don't have a choice, right? So, for example, most of the private schools around here in Georgia are accredited by SAIS, the Southern right. Affiliate. It's being pushed into all of our schools through that. And we don't have a choice because you, your kids need to be eligible. We need to change these state laws. We need to change it so that they don't, that they, you can pick your own accreditors. You don't have to be locked in. That's one way to do it in states like that. Um, the other way is to, I mean, just continue to expose it and to try to have some alternatives with alternative schools. None of them are easy answers, right? Um, and again, pull your, pull your kids out, which is the worst answer. Nobody wants that answer. Well, the problem um, with the answer, but you got to stay The problem diligent. with the answer of pull your kids out. <laughs> especially in, a, in like the Northeast is, and go where? <laughs> because every independent right. no, school, and I unless that. you go, you know, religious and you have to pretty much, at least, or at least around here in a blue area where I am, you have to go pretty far religious to avoid these because even a lot of the religious schools have gotten in whatever, for lack of a better word, you know, CRT, uh, and, or unless you want to homeschool or, or join a homeschooling pod, which is really hard for most families to do. And especially as the kids get to middle school and high school, there just aren't that many choices. I mean, I speak to parents all the time that say the exact same thing. I would pull my kids out if there was somewhere else to go, but there is nowhere else to go. And, and we all feel stuck. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, we need real solutions. I mean, all you're doing, I, I again, I, I don't have a silver bullet and I wish I did because I get asked this question a lot, but it raises the point that we need real solutions for private school. And um, we all need to come together and think about what those real solutions could be because none of us are going to come up with them. So on that, I want to go back to what uh, Beth, I'm sorry, sorry, I don't mean to monopolize. Um, the, the, the article that Beth, <laughs> you, you mentioned that uh, recently written uh, for the American Enterprise Institute that you said, this is not a culture war, it's a constitutional war. So we talk about we all need to come together, um, you know, to fight this. What do you, obviously, the legal aspect of this is important. I mean, you're a lawyer, you're fighting this, you know, the leading edge of this legal battle. Um, but what, what do you mean that this is more of a, a constitutional war than a culture war? And if it is more of a constitutional war, how do the rest of us play a role in this, not being lawyers or not being one of those very, very few parents that will go through and, and file a lawsuit? Yeah, so when I say it's a constitutional war, I mean it in kind of two ways. The first is the obvious way, which is I think what, you, what, what a lot of people have taken from the article, which is we need to go to the courts. We have constitutional violations. But I, I mean it in a, in a bigger way almost. The purpose of critical race theory in schools, when it's implemented into schools, is to teach kids to hate America so that they will destroy it. Plain and simple, 
right? You want to, un they, they are teaching CRT because they want to separate people from their kids, from their parents. They want to undermine every single aspect of our country from our legal system, our constitution, our nuclear family, everything that is America and the American dream, they want to destroy. So you're implementing this hateful ideology into schools to eventually undo our constitution. If you want to bring Marxist ideas into our country and you want to really create this collectivist fantasy, this socialist community and, and society, you are attacking our constitution. And that's what I mean from a bigger perspective of this is a constitutional war. This is an attack and an assault on America and an Amer on American. So it's treason. And so that crosses over. It, it, it crosses over. I mean, it crosses over private school, public school. It's mm -hmm. so much bigger. People see it as a, an assignment in a class. They see it as reciting Shakespeare, a Shakespeare sonnet they don't want to, or saying a BLM pledge in class, because that's what they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. The ultimate purpose of this is to destroy our country. And I might sound crazy to someone I say that, but it's the truth. And the faster we realize it, the better off we'll all be. Well, I think if, if you look at the words of the critical race theorists themselves, it becomes pretty apparent that that is the purpose. Um, you know, just read the words of Richard Delgado, Gene Savancic. I mean, it's, you know, they just, just read that. Um, I thought, I think what parents need to know though, is that when you're, when your students are going to be, or your children are going to be in school, they're not going to hear critical race theory, but they are going to hear terms like equity. And a lot of this is ushered in under the guise of equity. And I thought you had, um, it was in another piece in American Mind, you had a good handle on what that actually means. And basically it's to condition children to see each other's skin color first and foremost, categorize everyone according to a hierarchy of racial privilege, privilege and then pit different racial groups against each other. Mm -hmm. So it's important for parents, I think, to know that when you hear that, um, it sounds very nice. It's often uh, coupled with the idea of getting kids to perform to their potential, which is something I think we all think is important, um, but it's actually code in many cases and that people should be very aware that when you know the departments in your school are being asked to put out equity statements or when professors are being asked to explain how they are going to drive equity throughout an institution, um, that they should pay attention um, and really understand what's going on. So I think it's a, a very good point. Yeah, I mean, that that's how the schools are doing it. There's three steps, as you mentioned. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you look at the actual words of, you know, Richard Delgado, they've said, you know, that this is not like traditional civil rights and that the idea is to question the very foundations of, quote, the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, rationalism and constitutional law. Mm -hmm. That's what they want to undermine. I mean, it's right there in black and white in their books. Mm -hmm. um, so there's yeah. really no question about the intent here. All right. I'm going to, I want to slightly change the subject. We'll go wrap up. We we've seen that law schools have become politicized in the same way. There's been a number of high profile articles about Yale Law School, which is you know, one of the main feeders to the Supreme Court, obviously. Um, you're obviously a conservative <laughs> attorney, right? Self-described. Um, you know, the ABA, the American Bar Association has gone woke, we've seen. So 
moving you know, a little aside from education generally into sort of the legal arena, how worried are you, how concerned are you about what is happening for the same reasons that is happening in education, but to the legal community? Um, extremely. Okay. I have, to, I have to, to temper myself on a daily basis to not uh, screenshot things coming out of the law. I went to Georgia State College of Law I have to temper myself every day to not screenshot the the incredible wokeness uh, and arguably discriminatory statements that, that come out sometimes um, and put them back out there. But everything that you see is about social justice, equity, restorative, uh, everything. And um, they're being completely brainwashed. It's in every single subject in law schools. Um it really does, it genuinely concerns me. I'm glad Federalist Society is taking action here. I know that they're really looking deep into this in the law schools. And I think that we're gonna see a lot coming out of out of Federalist Society to fight this. Is there an obvious um, solution? And Alternative accreditation, I just mean, like we talk about there, alternative accreditation in education. Yeah, there, there's been discussion about that. I believe it's been tried at some point in the past. I really don't know how that how to take a stronghold there. Um, but we need to, I, I'm a little bit hopeful as this next generation goes and in, goes into law school, because we have seen a resurgence of conservatism on our college campuses, as much as this is being pushed. Um, there is an excitement. I speak on college campuses a lot, and there is a, there is an excitement and, a, and a, they want to learn and they want to educate themselves and speak out. So I'm hoping that they go to law school. I encourage them to do two things when I speak on college campuses, become a teacher or go to law school because we need more conservatives in both of those, those spaces. So only time will tell, but um, yes, it, it terrifies me. And I wish I had the answers to that also, but um, we'll do what we can by speaking to them and educating these students. I was just going to ask, do you think that this backfires? Do you think that some of these ideologies, they just, they don't take root and that kids end up becoming possibly more conservative than they otherwise would have been had they been presented with reasonable arguments that make their cases and rely on evidence and, you know, where there really is a back and forth. So that, that kind of answered my last question. Do you have any sense of what percentage of kids on campus really do kind of drink this Kool-Aid and, or from your speaking engagements? You know, I don't have a percentage. I will say one of the things that that concerns me. And I say this almost to, to, to get more people to speak to college kids, right? We need to realize this, that a question I get a lot is they just don't understand when we say critical race theory, the moms and the dads have educated themselves and understand what we're talking about largely, at least those that are fighting against it. A lot of these students have no idea what we're talking about. They frequently think that we're just talking about there was slavery in our country. And because of that, you've got Black people are poor and white people are rich. Like that is a question I get. That is the most general statement. It's not an accurate statement, but that is probably the question I get the most phrased in just that way on college campuses. And so that concerns me to the sense of even our conservative students don't fully understand what we're talking about. And so to anyone out there who is advocating on this, let's not forget about the college kids. We focus so much on K through 12 and so much on the parents, those college kids are going to be in the workplace. And in five, six, seven years, they're going to be parents and they need to understand this issue now. So um, it's kind of implored us to get out there on on college campuses and start a speaking tour that I actually just launched last week 
um, on about critical race theory on college campuses. And it'll, it'll really the launch was this past week, but it'll really get going in the fall. So tell um, us to teach these kids. Yeah. Tell us, about. I was going to let you go now, but since you brought that up, tell us, tell us what that is. And, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, there's a way to, yeah. Learn more. Yeah. I mean, we, one of the things that we, so we just launched this, it's with leadership Institute where we're just going around to college campuses and in kind of big speaker format, explaining to them what CRT is. We dismantle critical race theory and focus more on um, how it's being implemented and what they should look for. Um, That's one of the programs that we have. Another program that we're launching in three weeks um, is we're actually going to be publishing a guidebook for parents specifically on their legal rights. So there's a lot of information out there about how to talk about CRT and what it is, but nothing on their legal rights. So we're going to be launching that and then working with groups like Moms for Liberty, No Left Turn, other advocacy groups where we do a deep dive legal 101 training with their members throughout the country. Um, so all of that's coming up. It's going to mean a lot, a lot of traveling, a lot, a lot of Delta Sky Miles, um, but we're going to, we need to arm these parents. We need to arm these college kids. And that's just part of what we do here. We file lawsuits, but we also do a lot of public education. That's awesome. And that, and that, that guide for parents that's coming out in a few weeks, how, how, how will parents find that? It is okay. coming out. Yes, it is coming out um, the first week of May. And um, you'll be able to find it on our website slfliberty.org. And um, hopefully it will go crazy on Twitter. We'll be asking everyone they can to help us retweet it, get it out there. We're very happy Um, to do it. We just want to spread this. It's a free, yeah, it's a a free guide. Our trainings are, we do them for free. Um, Again, that's all part of our charge as a a nonprofit public interest law firm. And um, we just want to help parents. And I've been here 13 years with the foundation We've done a lot of important cases, taken two to the U.S. Supreme Court, challenging the EPA and government overreach. There is no issue that we have worked on that has been more near and dear to my heart and that I felt more passionate about than this issue. If we don't fix this, it's a lost cause for our kids. Beth, I I feel the same way you do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, thank you, Kim, for the work that you're doing. Keep it up. Um, and thanks for spending time with us uh, on the podcast. We're yeah. really happy to have you. I'll echo that. Thank you thanks guys for so all your much. work on this. Thank you. Yeah. Same to you guys. Bye. Bye, y'all. So, Andrew, have you ever sued anyone? Have I ever sued anyone? No, I have not. I have. I was involved in one arbitration business-related arbitration. That was kind of interesting that we won, uh, but I have never sued anyone. Have you? I have not. And um, no, and I, and you know, it is, it's a huge undertaking. Um, you know, I've never sued the school. I have filed, I have filed FOIA requests because I do think that that is a tool that parents can use. And uh, Kim talked a little bit about transparency and transparency laws and the, one of the open records uh, requests, you know, that's that's basically a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. And so that can yield some helpful information and government organizations, including schools, are required to respond to those. Um, so I have done that. Um, that really doesn't apply in a private school setting, though. So it wouldn't necessarily have helped you. No, it, it's hard. I know, I know, I actually know um, a family that is suing in New York City, a high, a high prestigious, high profile New York City private school. And it's public. I won't give her name, but it is public. Uh, and it's one of the very, very few lawsuits active against public schools. Mm-hmm. And it is years, and it may still be years, 
it is an enormous amount of money. I think they've spent close to or maybe even exceeding a million dollars to do this of their own money. Um, so this is not using a pro bono firm um, like Kim's. They had to pay out of pocket. And, and it is obviously not you know stressful on the family, on the kid. This is not easy to do. And this is one of the reasons why it is so much harder to fight. And we talked about this with Kim on the private school front. Um, and, 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 you know, and you don't get the pro bono law firms because who wants to do pro bono, you know, for parents that are paying $60,000 a year for, for, you know, private school tuition, right? Um, well, not only that, but a lot of the laws apply in a public school setting, but they just don't apply in right. a private school setting because you've entered into a contract, whereas at least a lot of the First Amendment um, and other laws that she was talking about, Title VI and yep. the equal protection, you know, that does apply. So there's just, I think, um, because of that application, then there's just more likelihood to yield some sort of precedent. So, you know, th that's that's why it is. You know, it does take to to the resources question. You know, it is clearly if you don't have a pro bono firm um, and they are few and far between, it's not like there is a whole, you know, that they're lining up to take a lot of these cases. They have limited resources as well, yeah. but it is something that takes a lot of um, it's emotion. It's time consuming, as she mentioned. Um, it can be emotionally draining, and it really is something that I think is a last resort. I have a question. Do you think that do you think schools know that? Do you think that they are aware that this really oh, is sure. kind of a huge step for an individual sure. to take? Yeah, I, so I can I can speak to that both from the K through twelve private school with my friend who is suing, and there's no question that they didn't expect it. They they just assume it'll go away. They don't expect the family to spend a million dollars doing this. I also become friendly with when I, when my letter sort of went viral, I got I got reached out by a bunch of uh, canceled university professors. And sort of this this informal universe canceled university professor support group, uh, one of which is also in active litigation with a public university in Texas. Uh, and again, his, his case is public. He's written about it. It's been written about in the New York Times, amongst other places. Um, but but and he's had trouble um, finding law firms to represent him. And, and it's a little bit complicated because his case goes a little bit beyond what we were talking about into defamation issues. And a lot of the pro bono law firms, I know this from him, get, get skittish when you get into def defamation because then you're trying to get money. And, and, but, but it was the right legal strategy from what I understand. But when you're going after money, you're not just going after a precedent, right? Uh, a lot of the pro bono law firms uh, don't want to do that. And so it's been difficult, but there's no question that schools K through 12, that universities know how difficult it is to litigate. And they, they you know, just assume no one's going to, or very few people are going to do it and, and it's sort of just going to go away. So th that's my understanding. It, it, is, it is hard to do that. It is. And, you know, the people who choose to do so, they really, they do demonstrate a lot of courage. So I commend that. They do. I, and, and, you know, this is where I was kind of interested in, in Kim's, and that AEI article where, where she was talking about constitutional, not culture war, clearly an aspect of this fight is legal. Perhaps at the end of the day, if this is winnable, it will be legal. It, it will be because of lawsuits. It will be because of, um, uh, I would say, reinterpreting the 14th Amendment or reinterpreting the Civil Rights Act, or, or I think it, it, what she would say is going back to the correct or original interpretation of the Constitution of the 14th Amendment of the Civil Rights Act. Um, but, you know, the point I want to make, I guess, to parents is that 
it can only be legal because uh, otherwise very, very, very few of us are in this fight. Uh, I think it is much broader than just filing lawsuits. That's a part of it. But we've got to speak up at your school. We've got to know what's going on in terms of curriculum. We talked about transparency, running for school board, taking your kids out of bad schools. I mean, all those things are part of this broader fight. Um, and, and I do think I, and I really like what she said. And, and I'd love to hear your opinion because I happen to agree with it. But it is something that I get a lot of pushback on, which is this is not just about teaching history and how to teach history. I don't think she used the word revolution, but I've used that. This is really a revolution. They are reinterpreting pretty much everything about this country. Uh, and the way they are doing it is, is non-transparent. And, and, you know, I think this is really a revolution, a quiet revolution that we have to push back on. Um, and, and I'm really glad that kind of she made that point. I don't know if you have a thought on that, um, but this goes much beyond just teaching history in K through 12 school. It, it does. And I, again, if you look at the um, what's behind critical race theory are a lot of ideas that can best be classified as Marxist. I mean, it really it is about dismantling society as we know it. And I know that that sounds a little, you know, tinfoil hat, but it really is. Um, all you have to do is read their their own words. I would encourage everyone to just Google or uh, look up. There's actually a good uh, Twitter thread by a guy named Neil Shenvey, who has uh, done a lot of good collection of critical race theorists kind of in their own words. And so for people to understand what's behind this, um, you know, go to the source is something that I'd say. And, you know, something and going back to our discussion with her about the, there are many components to this lawsuits are one that that's one option um, and certainly one not to uh, be taken lightly. You know, part of this is political electing different people. Part of it's legislative getting laws enacted that will better support things like transparency. Um, and then there is the court of public opinion. And I think that that cannot be underestimated. And that's talking with your friends, that's talking with your family, that is keeping up on what's being written, sharing, um, so that this becomes something. Because I think that's where you get um, more encouragement for people to speak out. Because at the end of the day, you're right, it's not going to be just a couple people and a couple loss, uh, lock, uh, lawsuits. It's going to have to be um, enough where we get to a tipping point and we can help uh, write this ship uh, because it is, it's a ship worth writing, in my opinion. I agree. And, and, and the more people that speak out, the easier it becomes to speak out, right? Courage is contagious. Cowardice is also contagious. But as we see more people speak out on these issues, obviously over the last year, as this issue has exploded nationally, we have seen more people speak out on this. And now we're seeing, we didn't touch upon more than kind of the racial aspect of this. Now we're really seeing that in the gender and sexuality and trans aspect of this same sort of identity Marxism or whatever you want to call it. And I think we're going to talk about that on a couple of upcoming podcasts, um, um, sort of the gender and the, and the trans and sexuality issues with some, some interesting guests. Yes, we will. So please, please stay tuned and check back with us um, yeah. for those episodes. So with that, any last words or should we wrap this up? I think we're ready to wrap. Okay, let's wrap this up. Well, thanks for listening to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Andrew Gutman, along with my fabulous co-host, Beth Feely. Um, if you missed our last episode, I want to remind you of it because it was a really terrific one. Uh, the legendary Bob Woodson of the Woodson Institute and uh, 1776 Unites. That was a terrific conversation. So if you missed that one, please look for that. Uh, as always, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate you share it. 
and follow us and subscribe and give us a nice five-star rating wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And until next time, uh, check your kids' backpacks, ask questions, and tell other parents about uh, resources that you can use to help fight back and take back our schools. Thank you for listening. Ricochet. Join the conversation.